Good morning. It's good to have you here. My name is Chris Peters. I joined the pastoral team here last year. Really grateful to be speaking to you here this morning and just want to welcome you here, whether you're joining us on live stream or whether you're here in person. We just pray that this would be a place that you feel at home, feel community, and feel the power of God at work in your life. And so my prayer this morning is as I preach that, that, that God would just speak to your heart. We have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke 9, Jesus says he sets his say, it says Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. And everything that follows is sort of his journey passages where he's making his way to Jerusalem where the final week of his life is going to happen. And there's been some real sort of prickly passages that are difficult to preach on. And this morning, I, we turn into Luke 15 which we're tempted to think of as a very kind of comforting passage, but to the hearers, especially the religious leaders and other people at Jesus' time, this would have been a very controversial, shocking message. I heard someone say, as I was preparing, this passage probably got him killed. So I just want to let you know this morning that I'm excited to unpack this. Charles Dickens has said of this passage in Luke 15 is probably the greatest story ever told. And it sums up the central message of the New Testament. And so as we read, I want you to know that I'm very grateful for going to Israel in the mid-90s with Ray Vanderlaan and all that that did to transform my understanding of the Bible and of the story of the gospel. I'm grateful to Ken Bailey, who I studied over the past number of weeks, who spent decades trying to unpack the cultural meaning behind this passage in Luke 15. And a number of years ago, Tim Keller started preaching on the prodigal God, and it's really changed a lot of our understanding about this passage and a number of things. So I'm grateful to all of them, and a lot of what you're going to get is things that I've learned or discerned that God taught me through people like them. So this morning, I want to read you the context of Luke 15. It starts out with this, just the first verse. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, Jesus is teaching, the sinners are gathering, and the religious leaders are murmuring, and they are saying to themselves and to others, This Jesus... He's off track. He's off mission. He's missing the point. He's soft on sin. He'll take anybody in. And they probably feel like they need to stop him. So this is a very intense kind of explosive moment. And in Jesus, in response to what they're muttering and what they're talking about, tells this three-part parable. One about a shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 and go look for a lost sheep. For about a woman who loses a coin in a rocky floor and is willing to sweep diligently until she finds the coin. And then this parable about the relentless father who's willing to go and find his lost sons. You may know it as the story of the prodigal son, but it's much more a story about the father. Never has a father loved his children like this father loved these boys. He was wise, loving, consistent, gentle, honest, patient, and suffering. He was utterly devoted to his boys, and they broke his heart. Now, as I preach this morning, as I speak about father, I'm not sure what your background is. All of us have a father. 
Maybe you had a great father. And when I talk about this, it just confirms from your earthly experience what God wants you to know about him as your heavenly father. Or maybe you had a distant or a cold or even abusive father. And if that's so, I'm so grieved by that reality in our world. Or maybe you've never known your father. I lost my father at a young age in my teens to his early battle with, he, he was 52 and got Alzheimer's at that age and I was only young, 13, 14 years old. But what I hope that you find this morning, no matter what your background, is that you can find the true heavenly father who promises to be a father to everyone, including a father to the fatherless in Psalm 68. The Father is the focus, and Jesus, as he tells us, totally redefines our understanding of God in talking about God as Father in this way, which no one did before. So in order to sort of uh, get in the spirit of the culture of the time, I'm going to pull out my Christ Memorial old robe, and I'm going to put it on because fathers at that time would probably wear a robe like this. And they would be sort of the elders and the statement of the community and of their families, the patriarchs. And so as I begin to read the scriptures, I want you to get a sense of, it wasn't a clerical robe that he was wearing, but maybe something like this. So Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to, out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father said to him, saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing, so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry, refused to go in, so this father went out and pleaded with him as well. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? The father replies, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your brother, this brother of yours, was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning, as we sort of enter in, there's this crisis moment in the first scene where the younger brother makes this audacious, shocking request to his father. To the Hebrew audience, it would be unthinkable that a son, while his father was alive, would ask for his share of the estate now. You see, an older brother would get two-thirds for his place as the patriarch, the soon-to-be patriarch of his father was gone, and he was to get that extra measure to care for his extended family and to make sure that God could, that he would be providing for his family when the father was gone. And the younger brother would get one-third. For the father, this would be probably the most hurtful event that he could possibly imagine. It would be humiliating, be disrespectful to the point of being like a mutiny against his father. Dad, I wish you were dead. I want to reject your heritage, your tradition, your faith. Dad, I want your blessings, but I reject your way of life. That's That's the intensity of this moment. It would be a great dishonor for the father before for himself before his family and before the community. And as we enter into this, there's two things you need to know. Two striking things that aren't happening, that happen. One is that the older brother is silent. We don't hear of him at this point in the story. Even though the brother had a responsibility for his family, had a responsibility to be the mediator in his family, there's no response at this time. And second is the father's response the hearers' mouths would be gaping wide open and they would say, the father says yes. They're expecting him to respond in anger, to run the son away, to run him away and disinherit him in some way for the disrespect that he was shown. Because there's nothing more important in this culture than family and land. And so instead, the father says yes. And it would mean a radical selling of property and land. They didn't have liquid assets where they could just transfer money or do things. This would mean selling things at a fire sale immediately at a loss and a risk and a dishonor to the father. It would be very painful. The father lets him go. Maybe in hope that he'll come to his senses someday. The father's devastated but keeps watching and working. I, had a, I got a deeper sense of how painful this would be for the father in watching a movie a few weeks ago called Beautiful Boy by Steve, that Steve Carell from The Office stars in about a true story about a young man named Nick Sheff who was addicted for 10 years to crystal meth. And um, it's a powerful story. It's on Amazon Prime. If you want to watch it, I encourage you to watch it. It'll, it'll give you a sense of what this story is all about. But you might ha- know a younger son type. It might even be a child of yours. You might have a heart pain that you've never experienced before. And the question is, how do I love well? How do I leave a light on for my 
for someone when you don't know whether they're ever going to come back. And I don't have any easy cookie cutter answers for you or this isn't a guarantee as I preach this patches that, that one way is going to happen. But I think I want you to know that the father grieves in these situations and says, I want my sons and daughters to come home. And he can connect with you in that place if that's true of someone you know or someone in your family. So then this thing happens. The father gives the inheritance to the son. He doesn't look back. He stays a little bit, and then he heads off for a distant country, probably with the father watching him go down the driveway. He went to get as far away from his father as possible, both physically and spiritually. It says he set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. Probably a better translation may be extravagant living, but he is all about the pursuit of pleasure. He was on a proud quest for personal fulfillment. He blew all in instant gratification and living in the illusion of his self-freedom, and he blew all the money. He had no backup plan. Who does that? But he had no backup plan. It's like he jumped from the plane with no parachute. First part, great. Ending, difficult. And here's the broader connection to all of us. We as human beings, we take the inheritance that God has given us. We take the money, the health, the brains, the personality, the resources, and we take the inheritance that God has freely given to us, and we say, God, I don't have anything to do with you. I'm going to go and live my life my way as if you never existed. And so we take our God-given inheritance, and we live as if God doesn't exist or even remotely exists. We keep them off in the corner. There's a passage in the Psalms that says, we all like sheep have gone astray. So all of us can connect with this point of the story. And then a downturn happens, a crash, a famine, and the son quickly gets to a desperate place. Things are looking rough. He's running out of cash. He doesn't know what to do, so he takes a job that's unthinkable for a Jewish here, that he's on a pig farm. He's working in the worst possible job, and he's humiliated. He's unclean. He's lost his dignity. He's broken his father's heart, and the famine hits, and he's desperate. And I, as I hear the story, I often wonder, like, why doesn't he just go home? I don't understand it. But then I read from Ken Bailey and from some others about what would happen if a Jewish boy would squander the family wealth with Gentiles far away from home? If he dared to return home, the entire community would gather on the edge of the village and they would take a pot like this and they would come before the young man or young woman and they'd say, this pot is a symbol of you. Maybe fill it with grain as a grain society. And they would take it before him and they would break it. And they would say, they would do a ceremony called the Kazaza. And they would say, You are cut off from your family, you have disgraced your father. This is the brokenness that you've caused in our community. You have broken the heart of your father. 
Your damage is beyond repair. Your fruitfulness is finished. You're not welcome. You are cut off. That's why it's called the kazaza. And so the son stays away, maybe thinking that this might happen to him. He's afraid of the punishment that might wait for him. But it says, even though with that possibility, he starts to come to his senses. And he says, I'm hungry. I'm an idiot. I need to come back home. And he comes up with a plan. He's, he's starting to turn, but he doesn't have it quite figured out yet. He's still in the place where he felt more remorse than brokenness. He, not quite to repentance, yes, but he says, I'm going to make a repair plan. I'm going to come back to my father. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. And I want you, God, I know I can't be your son. I've been cut off, but... I'll be, can I be one of your hired servants? And I'll pay you back. I'll work as a craftsman. I'll live away from home, and I'll work for you, and I'll pay you back. And so he heads back. He's not quite sure what's going to happen. Father is all along hopeful that his son will come home. And it says when the father saw him far off, maybe he recognizes the walk of his son. It says the dad runs and meets him at the edge of town or at the end of the driveway. Now that's shocking. That never would happen in the Eastern Hebrew culture. That would never happen because they wore robes. And in order to run with a robe, you've got to pull it up. And if you're not wearing dark pants, you're showing white March pre-spring break legs. And... <laughs> You run, and you got to hike it up and, like, run. Like, and it says he didn't just, like, run. He says, like, an Olympic run. He ran fast to his son. And he hugs him, and he kisses him, and repeatedly. And do you notice he also gets there first? So if anything like a kazaza is going to happen... The father sets the tone and everybody else has to let go because there's going to be no shame, no cutting off, no deserved punishment. He's going to be reinstated. None of the son's payment plan. The father doesn't even hear it. He says no. Kisses him. Gives him a ring that gives him the authority that he once had as a son. He gives him the robe, probably the father's robe. He gives him the shoes. He gives him unmerited grace. The son hasn't done anything except just turn and start to come back. Hasn't proved anything. Father's not like, we'll see how this goes and then we'll let you back. He just welcomes him back. The lavish father gives it even though he never asked. You know, the father in the story is a lot like God the Father. It's meant to be an allegory. And you know what? You might have been the younger son once. Or you are the younger son now. And I want you to hear this truth from this passage. There is no distance that you can travel. There is no place that you can go. There is nothing that you can do that there won't be God right there waiting for you to meet you when you turn and come and start back to him. It's not a long way back, as Trent said last week. God will meet you right there and start the reconciliation process.
process. Now there's this awesome celebration. They kill the fatted calf, which never would happen. It would be a rare occasion. It would be the highest honor and the celebration of the sun coming back, but even more, the celebration of the relentless father. In the same way that they celebrated the relentless shepherd who went and found the lost sheep or the relentless woman who searched diligently for the coin. It's a celebration of the value of the son and the wonderful relentlessness of the father but we go to scene two the older brother comes in from the fields asks what's going on he has probably been doing both jobs on the farm because his brother's been gone what are you doing dad what is going on he's mad he's indignant he's like he won't go in The father comes out to him too, initiates with the older son, and pleads with him, Son, please come in. I'm really that happy that your younger brother is back. If it was you, I'd feel the same way. But the son refused to go in, just like he refused earlier to confront his brother or search for his brother while he's gone. All he cares about, it seems, is the father's things and the father's estate, but he's ignoring the father's heart and there's some qualities of elder brothers elder brothers that can rise up in us see everybody's rejoicing except the older brother he resented his brother for leaving he resented him for coming home he resented his father for celebrating and he can hear his attitude when his dad has freely provided him he says dad i've been slaving for you that's his motivation it's out of duty trying to control his dad by the what he's doing or he's got this kind of self-righteous superiority dad i've never disobeyed your orders really even though right now in this moment when he's standing outside he's publicly humiliating his father by refusing to go into the party he is just as far from the father on the edge of the house than his younger brother was a thousand miles away he's lost but he's blind to his heart condition the younger brother's sin was public, visible. The older brother's sin was private and in his heart and hidden. But both are lost. And he's got this spirit of judgmentalism. You notice he doesn't say, my brother. He said, this son of yours. He renounces his brother. And Tim Keller has this line that I heard that it just stuck with me. It says, it's natural for younger brothers to think that older brotherness and Christianity are the same thing. And they're not. This elder brother spirit of judgmentalism and resentment and self-righteousness is not Christianity. It has no grace. There's no grace. It's, they're 180 degrees apart. And the father pleads with the older son and says, he's infinitely gracious, but infinitely firm at the same time says i will not apologize i'm not going to stop the party the father will plead he'll go out to his son he'll do anything but he says this brothers of yours is lost and is found this brother of yours he's claiming him back he's claiming the older son are back say no this is our family this is your brother you're still family it's not too late you can still come and live 
as my one of my beloved sons. You can come to the party as his rejoicing older brother in the proper place I intended you to be. For a long time, the father pleads, I have lived in sorrow over a lost son. And now that I have him back, must I lose another? And there's silence. And the father looks into the eyes of the older brother. What does he see? We don't know because the story ends. It's a freeze frame. How does it end? How does the story end? Everybody listening would have to decide for themselves how it ends because Jesus placed all the hearers right in the story. It's not just about the story. It's about me. It's about you. It's about all of us. How does the story end? Will you come home? Maybe you've been in a far country. Distant. Rebellious. Alone. Lost. Searching, but lost. Or maybe you've been at home, trapped in legalism or resentment or bitterness or just a proud, proud attitude, pride. And both of those states are alienated from the Father's heart. And so my prayer, as I've been telling this story this morning, is that your heart, your life, your spirit would be melted by and moved by the cost that God took to bring you home. You don't have to come and impress God with some plan like the younger brother or good works or your duty or your pride or whatever. You just got to come home by the grace of God the Father because he's the God who initiates. He runs out to the younger son. He goes out and pleads with the older son and says, come home, be part of my shalom. He's willing to be humiliated by running, willing to be humiliated by liquidating his property, willing And there's another person in the story. There's a third son, the one telling the story, Jesus, the only begotten son of the father. Because he's the true older brother. He's how the father brings us home at an enormous expense to himself. See, Jesus was willing to be humbly born in a dirty manger. He was willing to be beaten and humiliated on a cross. He died... in our place and he took away our sin and our shame that we deserve just like the younger son deserved. Jesus embraces us and and honors us and welcomes us and reinstates us when we turn back and God meets us in Christ. So as I finish, nobody earns their way home. You just respond to sheer grace. Jesus is appealing to immoral outsiders, if that's how you feel, or if you're a moral insider. The way home to what you've been looking for, meaning, love, meaning, and joy is in and through Jesus. To all the younger and older sons and daughters here and listening, whether you're an insider or an outsider, whether you're found or not yet found, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done. If you're at the edge of town or far away from town or whether you're at the edge of the house, 
may you know the grace and the restoration that's available to you, to us all, in Christ Jesus. God's costly love and forgiveness can pardon and restore anyone. May you live and respond to that call of God and live at home in shalom with the Father. We're going to sing a song in response called Reckless Love. Maybe you thought it was coming. But I pray that it's not just a closing song for you today, that it's an overflow of gratitude from your heart, from the new appreciation of just how much God was willing to humiliate and pursue you and claim you and call you to come back home. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, only you know. You've known us before we were born. You have a heart for all of us. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that you may set us free from our desire, our, our sinful desire to wander from you and to pursue other things. And may you call us home. May you set us free. And may you call us to be part of the fellowship that you desire. Reunited with you. We pray it in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My prayer for you is that this wouldn't just be a message you hear with your ears, but it's deep down in the core of who you are. This was offensive to the religious leaders and the Pharisees because Jesus was saying, you want to be about the things of God? Then join me, the seeking shepherd, the relentless woman, and the prodigal father, the extravagant father, join me in searching for my loss. Don't set yourself apart in a way that means you don't have to care for people anymore. Join me in the search. So I want you to hear this from 2 Corinthians, and may you go in its peace. This is maybe a summary of my message in a few lines. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. The new life has begun. All this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors as if God was making his appeal to others through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we may be made right with God through Christ. May you live that truth and live in its peace. Amen.